Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing heists and cons and grifters and all sorts of fabulous things. Welcome to episode 18, Heist Heist Baby. I'm Alex, the mastermind slash grifter one. I'm Freya, the grifter slash mastermind one. And I'm Macy, the other grifter slash mastermind one. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And that was one of our most unhelpful taxonomies ever. <laughs> uh, let's discuss that. But first, what are we reading, fellow serpents? I just today finished reading a book called Jane Doe by Victoria Helen Stone. So this is a book about a Slytherin sociopath female character who moves back into her old hometown to systematically destroy the life of a man who abused her best and only friend to the point where this friend committed suicide. Mm. The It's very strong first person narration of someone who is a fairly pure sociopath. And just from a revenge plot point of view and the sharp observations of the ways in which fuckwit men abuse women, it is so good. Highly recommend. It's a pretty quick read. Very sort of short chapters the way that you see in thrillers sometimes. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. If you like watching Slytherins systematically destroy people who really deserve it, blanket recommendation. Go for it. You cannot imagine the <laughs> amount of high-pitched noises I've been making at Freo about this book and distinct amounts of grabby hands because I want it because it sounds like all the best parts of the TV show Revenge without the downsides. Yeah, yeah, it's like that. And the other thing that I have been consuming, speaking of <laughs> terrible, terrible media decisions, I have fallen into a pit of <laughs> a new Chinese drama those listeners who were around for the great Freya gets everyone into Nirvana in fire saga will recognize the early symptoms. So I have been watching Guardian. Now Nirvana in fire is an excellent television show. Guardian is an awful television show. The production <laughs> values are so bad. It's sort of like season one of Merlin if the CGI was worse. Oh, and, that's saying something. Oh, yeah, it's worse. And oh, scripts, it's a lot worse. The scripts are dodgy. Lots of the acting is questionable, but the two main characters, the acting is superb, and the dynamic between them is so good. So it's essentially an urban fantasy procedural, kind of. Except that because China... Conceit, because China, they can't have fantasy. So it's based on uh, a web, Chinese web novel, which was based quite heavily in Chinese mythology and also was outright gay. So the two characters, two main characters, actually in a romantic relationship, but when they made it for TV, they had to be like, well... We can't have magic, so we have to call it science. So there's these deeply, <laughs> deeply implausible, it's aliens and mutations and things like that in order to explain essentially like X-Men superpowers. It, it don't just, you have to just sit through the exposition and ignore it. But the two main characters are a sort of dirtbag motorcycle riding supernatural cop who has the worst also, mustache. 
the worst mustache. Like it's he amazing. He has dirtbag facial hair and he wears leather jackets and like slouches around with lollipops in his mouth flirting indiscriminately. And the uptight professor who he encounters on a case who is also secretly a badass sort of ambassador slash magical figure who has come into his life to take care of him slash keep an eye on him because this person is also the reincarnation of the dude he fell in love with hundreds of years ago. That's There's so much fealty in it. The dynamic between them, even though the TV show can't make it outright gay, it's just like flirt, it's very, flirt, flirt, It's flirt, very, flirt. very gay. It's and, very, very gay. <laughs> and as you might anyway. have gathered from the shouting... Uh, Freya might have gotten me as well, but I'm only five episodes in, so I will count that as a success. I am being restrained. There's only 40 episodes. It's not a Nirvana in Fire, like, terror saga. I'm, I'm, not all, I'm not all the way through either. Anyway, I cannot in good conscience recommend it as a quality television show, but it's all on YouTube with English subtitles. Yeah. Have fun. Uh, fun is one word. Um, meanwhile, other than this uh, terrible decision I make to listen to Freya, which is always a good life choice, except for when it's not. <laughs> I give amazing advice. Thank you. Except for when it's not. Um, I have also read Alex's book because the conspiracy <laughs> arc is on a world tour. So I took it on an adventure. We went on a ferry. Um, and then I have also been reading a non-fiction book about con artists, at least 50% because I wanted to finish it to give it to Freya because I'm sitting in Freya's spare bedroom right now as we record this. Yay! Yay! Yes, I have a Macy. That's very good. It's very I dragged good. her to the ice rink and made, me, made her watch me like fail around on my ice skates this morning. I heard that it was very good. She told me that you didn't fall more than too many times. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel an average number of times for me. It's skating. You're going to fall. I see. I see. Uh, and I read Macy's book, uh, Hagstone, and uh, we had some really good talks about it. And I hope that my comments on it were useful. Uh, and also, the thing that I have to mostly shout about this week is that I read Witchmark by C.L. Polk. You need to read this book. This is so good. I'm not spoiling it. I'm not spoiling it. Because I can't read it yet. Right. We, <laughs> I'm not allowed. Freya is not allowed to read it yet. But I do want to say, dear listeners, that I got like 8% into this book. And I went into, I slid into Macy and Freya's DMs. And I was like, so <laughs> when are we going to tent pole? Which mark? Because it's amazing <laughs> and I want to scream about it. Uh, it is a secondary world fantasy set in sort of an Edwardian technological setting. And it's gay and amazing. And the world building is fantastic. The characters are incredible. It has all the tropes you love. Go buy it. Go get it from the library. Go shout about it and tell your friends. Uh, I also watched a bunch of TV this week. I started watching Winona Earp, which is incredible, and I'm enjoying it. I watched To All the Boys I've Loved Before so that I would know what everyone was talking about on Twitter. And I just got two very exciting books in the mail today, which I'm excited about. Uh, 1688, A Global History by John E. Wills Jr., which is a world history about exactly one year 
And then I also got, continuing the exactly one year theme, I also got a recommendation that Macy gave me, which is 1177 BC, the year civilization collapsed. And I'm very excited for In fairness, it's not actually about just one year. It's about a lot more than that, but... It, yeah. the title makes catchy title in case you haven't noticed yeah. dear listeners we're nerds I was gonna say, this is why you guys are the ones doing all the geopolitics and why <laughs> i'm gonna come to you and make you do the geopolitics because you read these kind of books that's fair <laughs> you write my sex scenes for me so you know yeah fair, fair, fair trade fair trade outsourcing the entire of plotting everything uh, much to the glee of my long-suffering agent <laughs> <laughs> we got you boo so what are we talking about today And what are some of the terms that we use and what do they mean? Well, the rest of the episode is going to be Alex's fun facts yelling about stage magicians corner. That's right, people. (laughs) No, we are vetoing. (laughs) No. I have to put one dot point for you to yell in. You have to wait till we reach that dot point and then you can yell. I'm not allowed to yell for the entire hour. No. Listen, we will mute you. I mean, this won't work, listeners, because Alex is in charge of the editing, so Alex can just, like, put any shouting she can Alex just mute us. In. It can be Alex and monologues for an hour. <laughs> no, be restrained. <laughs> I can run my own heist here. So we are talking about heists and cons. Who would like to define some terms? I feel like most people know what a... Well, okay, here's a good question. Are we drawing a distinction between a heist and a con? Yes. Yes. Okay, tell me then, Macy, since you answered so, ah. I have tricked you. I have cunningly tricked oh you my with my own confidence game Listen. into making you define a term instead of asking the question for I us to define. I will make an etymological argument, which is that a heist involves taking something. By he- like, you can also use heist to mean like pick something up, like you hoist. Mm. It's a thing. I-, I think that's a different word, but sure, we'll go heist with that. Hoist and heist are like etymologically connected, though. But I, I will argue that a heist involves uh, taking a thing, generally a physical object, sometimes very rarely an idea, but it involves theft of some sort, whereas a con is short for a confidence game, right? And so a con is far more about tricking someone. Now, I think you'll find that most things that are heists and cons involve both. But I think it's a question of degree. I, I think you're right. And now that you've explained it, I agree with you. A, a heist is more about taking something. A confidence or a con or a confidence game is about making someone give you the thing. Or not even necessarily that. I feel like you can have a con that doesn't involve anything at all changing hands, but is about tricking someone into a belief or mm. a behavior. Okay. All right, and conversely, sure. I think you can have a heist that doesn't have an element of con to it. Mm-hmm. There may be small parts of it, but if you think of something like a very well-planned art heist, for example, you can do one of those if it's very technologically based, if it's all about cheating systems, then you can do one that doesn't actually involve the confidence game, the telling of a story to any one individual in particular, or if it does, it would be on a very small scale. So I think you can separate them entirely, but it's more fun when there's both happening at once. I was just reminded of uh, the article, I think that Alex and I both read about the Chinese art thefts, the, the rash of, of uh, air quotes around theft, because you could also call it reclamation of previously stolen cultural heritage. Um, in the real world, there's a great article about it, and I'm sure we can con- convince our scribes to, to link it for the audience. But those were thefts, much more so than cons. And here's another term that I want to talk about. What's a grifter? We seem to all be... I, like Mastermind is fairly easy to understand, but what, what is a grifter? How, why are we all grifters? 
I would say it has something to do with our Slytherin counterpart or Slytherin primary slash secondary nature. So to me, a grifter is someone whose primary role is in that confidence game things. Their entire job is making someone believe something towards a purpose. And again, it doesn't have to be to get something from them, but it's about either changing someone's mind about something or making them buy into an idea in order to change their behaviour in a way that suits you. So that's what we're talking about. Why do we like it? Because it's competence porn. Because <laughs> it's competence porn. I think that is the, the simple, short, sweet answer. Yeah, for reals. Uh, because in real life, getting robbed is a awful, terrible experience. Um, I have friends who have been mugged on the street or who have had people break into their houses and it really shakes you up in a way that you don't really expect it to. I mean, it's a like a violation of what you think is safe. It makes you think that nothing is safe. Right, exactly. Uh, And even once when I was in college, I had a roommate who was a a teacher at a high school and for a Halloween prank one year, some of his students came by the house and just like very gently vandalized the house. They didn't do any property damage whatsoever. It was things like putting plastic forks in our lawn, throwing eggs at the house. They used some uh, of that fake snow to like spray paint words on our house, all things that could be cleaned and removed. But it was still kind of terrifying because we didn't know what was happening. We didn't know at the time that these things were temporary and removable. It was it was uh, shook the foundations of what we thought was safe, as you said. Yeah. But we like them in fiction because they're transgressive. And I would argue that we like them because in most fiction, at least, the person who is having the thing done to them is presented in a way that is less sympathetic than the character doing the thing. So some places, some media is more overt about this. So if you look at the difference between, for example, uh, the TV show Leverage and the TV show, oh, now I've forgotten its name, the British one. Hustle. Hustle. So in Hustle, it's much more, we are criminals, we are doing this just to rich people to get their money. In Leverage, there is much more of a moral slant to more, these people have done something bad, we are getting back at them and they definitely deserve it. And I think there's always got to be that element of the person deserves it on some level. And there is a through line in these things that's often quoted. And I don't know if it is particularly realistic, but it is in fiction. They say that you can't con an honest person, which in itself is a statement that there is something about this person that means they deserve it or that they are vulnerable to it. So I will counteract that. I think that in at least one of our tent poles, we have a good example of a heist being pulled on someone who didn't really do anything wrong. And we're perfectly sympathetic to them. We're perfectly sympathetic to the thieves, even though there is no moral reason for this heist. Um, I think that it's really not about thinking that the victim is a bad person, so much as it is being buried in the justification that the character gives themselves, which may or may not involve that. So you mentioned a couple of shows about what I would call white hat grifters. Uh, to to parallel the the hacking term, which is Robin Hood type plots, steal from the rich, give to the poor, right injustices. Um, in fact, I would argue at least two of our tent poles are not that kind of grift whatsoever. But I also have been reading um, the the book on the psychology of the con, and it really isn't true that you can't con an honest person. You can con anybody who is willing to believe a story. Yeah, and I think that's why it's a fictional justification. Because it's to make you feel a little bit better. Right, but I'm not... It's not true. I'm not sure that all 
cons believe that moral like all con fiction even believes that i think that it is one of many ways that you can justify a con but a lot of cons are for profit even in oh look in today's capitalist hellscape (laughs) i think anybody who has enough money to be worth robbing go for it fuck eat the rich (laughs) like if you've got that six million dollar diamond necklace or you've got that much money you know, you, pro- you possibly deserve it on some level, just the morality of being a billionaire. Yeah. Whereas if you watched an art heist that was about taking something from a, an art gallery, unless there was a very good justification for it, like returning it to traditional owners, or there is some particular reason why it shouldn't be there, or you've got a real investment in the robber, I believe art should be in art galleries. Whereas stealing $6 million, go for it. You're telling me that you're really angry at Debbie Ocean for the plot of Ocean's 8 then? for stealing those innocent gems. Gems aren't, they weren't artwork. Those are art though, I will fight you. But okay, how about, how about street cons? Okay, how about three card Monty and the street magician? Are those stealing from the rich? No, and those aren't as interesting because it's somebody just- Alex, that was an invitation for you to yell. Oh, I'm sorry. No, those are (laughs) terrible things because those aren't cons at all. Those are magic tricks. Alex is figuratively holding up a crucifix, some garlic, and hissing. In this house, we hate magicians. Oh, <laughs> The difference now you may be wondering, dear <laughs> listeners. Welcome to Alex's Fun Facts Hating Magicians Corner. <laughs> Welcome. Make yourself comfortable. It's we will be here corner. for the rest of the hour. It's not a it's corner. Alex's it's Alex's life. It's a whole room. It's my entire life. You're correct. So the difference between a magician and a con artist is very subtle and distinct and this is the difference in fiction in real life there's not a whole lot of difference they're bad people they shouldn't be stealing things listeners don't go stealing things and certainly don't blame us if you do uh, <laughs> we're not liable the, in fiction the difference this podcast between, does not endorse criminal activity <laughs> this podcast does not endorse criminal activity thank you yes we do though Mm, only in fiction (laughs) only in fiction don't get us sued macy (laughs) anyway in fiction the difference between a magician and a con artist even though they have exactly the same skill set is that a magician gives you this smug little self-satisfied smirk and you're like how did you do it and they're like a magician never reveals his secrets Alex has been hurt by magicians in the past, clearly. (laughs) Clearly. And (laughs) Alex doesn't like not knowing things. Alex really doesn't. That is true. The thing that Alex loves more than anything else is secrets. Alex loves knowing secrets. Alex loves having secrets told to her. Alex loves confiding her own secrets. Alex will never tell someone else's secret to someone else without permission. Alex also loves the third person. Alex does. Thank you. (laughs) A con artist, different from a magician, a con artist will always explain to you how they did the trick. At the end of the book or the movie, there's always a little flashback sequence where they show you all the things that they didn't show you on the first pass. And they say, oh, here's how we did this. Here's why it was important for us to have a goat in this scene. Here's why we needed 15 pounds of lobsters delivered to the Upper East Side in Manhattan. But those are two different types of performances. So stage magicians are real people. 
they're not always fictional people. They are real people. I they disagree that re- even like real life <laughs> stage magicians are real people. I don't think that magicians are people. But they are doing a performance where the point is you don't know. Whereas you're talking about fictional con artists where the point of that narrative and the point of that performance is the satisfaction of being told at the end. Yeah. And I made Macy watch the first Now You See Me movie which is a duology of movies that i love and it kind of combines the two because it shows you magicians as con artists and then it gives you the tricks at the end it does that thing where it says and here's how we did all the magic so i think you'd probably like those if you could get over your inbuilt hatred for the people involved hold on i may have seen those are those the ones that came out there was like a thing with an airplane where they like stole a whole airplane and they tricked someone to thinking that he was that's the second movie yeah okay well don't spoil that to me then but i'm not i was not entirely satisfied by those explanations because that's not how physics no there is an element of magical realism to them where you have to believe that the people involved have slightly extended skills beyond the bounds of of normality but they're still providing an explanation and one of the things i like about the first movie is that it really illustrates that why we like con narratives and heist narratives is because it is a performance it is a spectacle and it's showing stage magic as spectacle and one of the things that happens in the first movie is they're doing a show in vegas and they show a heist happening in Paris as part of that show. And the audience gets really on board, even though they're not the kind of people who would normally rob banks because they're turning the spectacle of performance magic into the spectacle and a narrative of heist, which we are all really into, as is shown by the popularity of movies like the Oceans franchise. Yes, and I think that, particularly in book form, but I would argue also in movie and TV form, I think that heists engage the same type of muscle that a murder mystery does. Mm, yeah, where you have to figure out how they're doing it. Exactly. Yeah. But yes, yeah. well segued though into Ocean's 8, because we are about a third of the way through the episode, we should probably talk about our tent poles, shouldn't we? I Great. guess. Uh, so you said Ocean's 8, so let's do the uh, traditional taking five minutes to scream and make sex noises about Ocean's 8. Ready, set, go. <laughs> I might might have watched it again on the plane and I had forgotten some of Kate Blanchett's outfits and it was a problem. Did you become more gay? I think that's hard. Sure. Like that's that's challenging. (laughs) But... was your gay enhanced? Sure, let's go with that. We got, we got a good top, got a good booster shot. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> sure. I, sure. I'm I'm so happy, and there's a moment that I love that I had entirely forgotten is in the movie, um, when they are recruiting their their crew, in which um, Kate Blanchett asks Sandra Bullock because fuck knows if they have actual names in the film. I don't know. I don't know their names in the film. Kate Blanchett. Debbie and Lou. Okay, oh. Lou suggests a hacker or someone who is a man and debbie is like eh, no we men get noticed women get ignored and for this job i want us to be mm. ignored mm. let's hire rihanna <laughs> yeah i mean good, also that's such a good choice <laughs> lol <laughs> she really gets ignored so mm. and that movie does a really good job of that classic getting the gang together which is a really satisfying part of any good high score con narrative if you want to do the team thing yes. so good but i loved it particularly because the way it does it is with these cranky wives who like you just came out of prison and you're doing what i mean you're my partner in life so sure i'll help you but oh why are you like this so engaging and i love it's it. very familiar also <laughs> 
you're my wife and I love you, but why? <laughs> it's like mood. We don't need men. Eh, men. Yeah. So let's talk about this heist because this is a really good example of tricking the audience with classic magician style misdirection. Oh, look, we're stealing this necklace. Look at this necklace. Isn't it big and shiny and heavy? Hi, spoilers, by the way, for the movie Ocean's 8. Just... FYI. If you haven't seen Ocean's 8, you're making a very terrible life Pause choice. Pause this thing. You can rent it for like two ninety nine. Go rent it. Watch it. Come back. Stop the episode right pa- now. Pause for two hours to recover from Kate Blanchett. Also that. So four hours from now, come back to the episode. Cool. Welcome well done. back well to done. the episode. So it does a really good misdirection with, we're stealing this necklace. Oh, wait. We got caught stealing this necklace. Oh no. But actually the whole time we were trying to steal the entire crown jewels of like every nation of Europe. Mm, so and good. Oh, and so I like that it did. I like that it actually had the two misdirections in it because mm-hmm. if you're basing it, if you're thinking about the original Ocean's Eleven, the whole point of that one is that it is a heist that is also a revenge. Mm-hmm. And this one is also a heist. And you think once you start to realize that it's also a revenge, you think that that's the only second layer that there is. Yep. And then it turns around at the end and says, actually, that was also misdirection. Here are all the sparklies that we got behind your back. I love it so much. It's so good. Ocean's 8 in particular, I think, is a great example of the thing that you were saying earlier, Freya, competence porn, because this thing just glows off like clockwork. You just get to sit there for two hours and watch these beautiful women in beautiful dresses do the thing. And nobody stands in their way, and everything is fine, and they all make millions of dollars and ride the subway together. And that's what I love about the Oceans films, and some people would argue that that, that there's a lack of tension in the movies because nothing goes wrong, but the whole point is that something goes wrong, but it's actually going right. And at the end, you sit back with that satisfaction exactly that you get at the end of a good murder mystery where Hercule Poirot has sat down and explained everything to you for five pages and you go oh all of those moving parts fit together really well yes wasn't that nice because the key is not oh my god are they going to pull it off you're sitting down for like a con artist flick you know that they're you know that they're gonna pull it off you know that they're gonna steal the thing somehow like you're genre savvy at all you know this the question is how do they pull it off it's the journey, not the destination. Mm, it's a process story. Except yeah. that in this one, it is the destination because the heist isn't what you think it is. Like that is also a surprise, which I found charming. True, true. But it didn't need that. Yes, you're completely right. It did not need. It that. would have been. It would have been a satisfying story without that. That was just like a beautiful cherry on the top of the Sunday. Right. I think that's why. Yeah, I, I use the word charming because it was not. It didn't have to be there, but it was delightful that it was. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And we read another heist, didn't we? Yes, we also read uh, Six of Crows, which was incredible. Uh, I had not read this before. I thought that I was going to love one particular character, and then it turned out that I loved a different character more particularly. There's a, I would say there's a, a good bit of Alex Bate in this book. Not, not Does, as much. Would someone like to briefly introduce this one, just to explain to listeners who haven't read it, like who it's by and what it's about? Six of Crows is by Lee Bardugo, and it is a second world fantasy set in, or partially set in kind of fantasy Amsterdam, which is very cool. And it is about, it's the first of a trilogy, is it? Duology. Duology. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And uh, it is about a team of young adults. They're all like 17, 18, which- Except they're not. Even though they're, they're really not- 
They're, really they're, they're at least in their mid twenties. They're just yeah. all have way too much backstories and way too few parents to be in their teens. Yes, agree. Uh, I think that they were put in their teens so that this book could be sold as YA, even though yes, it's not really, and they're not really. Uh, but hey, that's how the industry works. What are you gonna do? Uh, so it is about uh, Kaz Brecker, who is a classic mastermind, and I'm not sure if I can even. I-, I would say it's a it's a prison break heist, right? It it is a prison break heist. Uh, sorry, I got derailed for a second there because I was trying to think of his uh, Sorting Hat Chats taxonomy, and I was thinking, is he a pure Slytherin? I guess so. No. This is why we got distracted slash overlapped in our taxonomies earlier, dear listeners, because we've been trying to think about can you break down grifters into Slytherins and masterminds into Ravenclaws, or is it more complicated than that? And isn't it sad that there are no thieves or hitters or hackers among the three of us? But that's what you get when you have three Slytherins on a podcast. I can double-class hacker if I have to. Um, yeah. I would argue that, argue that Kazbrecker is probably a Ravenclaw secondary because um, he isn't adaptable so much as he plans. Yeah, that's what I was sort of developing mm-hmm. in He's my Freya, mind. He's Freya, but thinking. like way more kneecapping than I am aware oh, of. So much kneecapping. Just a lot of kneecapping in this I book. could have a secret double life of kneecapping. You I would, would believe never you. Know. I mean, you're a doctor. You would know how. It's true. That's true. It's true. I would have good aim. Please, um, could yeah. you uh, do me a huge favor and not discover your secret passion for kneecapping until I've left? That would be lovely. The trials that you ask of me, Macy. I, I like my kneecaps. I have uses for them. <laughs> Macy wakes up in the middle of the night and Freya's standing by the bedside. <laughs> contemplative expression on her face. <laughs> like, no. So about your kneecaps. Are you sure you need both of those, Macy? Anyway. Couldn't you just get by with anyway, one? <laughs> I wanted to note something about uh, Six of Crows, which was there was, and it's kind of what I was saying a moment ago about them having so much backstory. Um, there's a delightful amount of character work in this book. Mm. Everyone Mm. is real motivated, but it's all really fascinating interlocking. I was particularly charmed by um, the backstory romance between two of the characters, between the the Jocelyn and uh, Nina, who is a... What, how, Grisha? Is that how we pronounce that? A magician. Yeah, yeah Grisha. Uh, a yeah. mage in this mm-hmm. world. I was, imp- I was impressed by the fact that Bardugo managed to pull off a couple of quite complicated high spots, but also give you six quite distinct yeah. character journeys. Mm-hmm. Like, it's each... a big book for a YA book, but she gets a lot done. She really, page. really does. And uh, I was not expecting to have each of the chapters be from a different person's perspective, but it's super effective. And it really... Like, there's no way to do character work without... I, I mean, like, the best way to do character work is uh, is to get inside someone's head and to see things, to see the world the way that they see it. And having each chapter be from a tight third person centered on a different character is just a brilliant way to do that. It's also an excellent way to do a multi-person heist narrative yes. mm-hmm. because it gets as close as you can to what you see in the Oceans movies where you sometimes just have one person doing a task and you may not see the entire context, but you're seeing them off alone doing their own parts of the heist, which if you've only got one or two point of view characters or at least a third person that's quite tight on one person in a, in a book, for example, mm-hmm. you can't necessarily see all of the moving parts. And it also means that because different people are aware of different parts of it and only Kaz has the whole story 
there is a lot of secrets being kept, which makes for really good tension. But I actually don't think it's secrets being kept so much as it is misdirection for the audience, because you don't want to be in the mastermind's point of view for particular pieces of it. You don't want to be in the person plotting within the con. Like, you wouldn't want to be in Jesper's head when Jesper was betraying them, for example, if he was the one point of view character. That would ruin the book. So it's a great sleight of hand. Mm. I think I talked about this when we were talking about uh, Machiavellian uh, characters, about the, the downsides of being in a mastermind's head. Yes. We have one more tentpole to talk about, don't we? And I think, Freya, are you going to introduce this one? Yes. So the last tentpole is a duology of fanfics that are very tightly linked. So I think you can read them, you should read them both together because the second one comes on very tightly from the events of the first one. So these are a pair of Inception fanfics called Palm Ditch Steel and Load Misdirection Switch by Imperfect Circle. And they are... Inception post-movie team fix, as a lot of the Inception fanfic is. Uh, the pairings, if you care about these things, are Arthur Eames and Ariadne Saito. And I love these stories. I think they do a lot of character work, but also have some interesting things to say about both heists and cons. And they really take advantage of the speculative conceit that mm. the movie Inception brings up, this idea of mind heist and stealing ideas and influencing people and the possibilities of what can be done to someone in a level that is unreal. Mm. And that was what I really liked about these two, especially that, again, it does that character work. So the first one is all narrated by Arthur, the second one is all narrated by Ariadne, and even then, the team is aware of the overarching plot and what is actually going on in these cons, but the narration doesn't quite let it through. So it shows you a way of using fairly tight third person that gets so deep into a person's emotions mm -hmm. that it's almost its own way of misdirection. You really care about the relationships and the personalities and what's going on here, and so you don't quite notice that they're not giving you all the information until the end, which I think is very clever. Inception fandom is an interesting one to do fic in because the characters are such liars that you can do a lot with them. You can do almost anything with them. I did find that these fics were a little more heavy on the relationship stuff and that I wasn't entirely sure that the, there was enough con for my mood. Mm. Like, I wanted to, to have more details about how the heist was working, but it was also fascinatingly, I would say, tying... How you pull a con or a heist, uh, how you pull a con, I would say more so, as a parallel to the relationships that the point of view characters were having in each of them. Because you get both of them, both Arthur and um, Ariadne are in these relationships, they're not entirely stable, they're not entirely sure where they're going, and they're trying to pull these tricks that they would use during a con on their erstwhile partners. And one of the things about the Inception team is that they have those very clearly defined roles, that sort of the point man, the forger, mm -hmm. the architect, that do not map directly to the con roles of grifter, hitter, hacker, but they are still a, a taxonomy of deceit in this particular world. And what I like about reading the fic is the ways in which that infiltrates character voice. So the second one, Ariadne notices things in terms of architecture. Mm -hmm. like a lot of the personal detail is to do with the way that things are constructed and she thinks in quite concrete, sophisticated, fitting things together, almost engineering kind of mm -hmm. terms. Whereas, you know, Arthur's is more sort of obsessive about detail. And I think if you use those that kind of narrative, again, it's not quite a misdirection, but it's a way of showing you the same things happening 
using different people's kinds of narration, which I always love. What did you think about the point that the second one made about uh, a heist versus a con and the point of a long con? I don't think that I agree with with Yusuf. So the point uh, that it made was that one of the characters, Yusuf, who is a more experienced con man in the movie, he asks the others what what makes a con, like what makes a con, and they all make terrible. Well, what's the answers. what's the cardinal rule? Yes, what's the what's first the rule, rule of, of a long what's the first con? rule of a long con? And he says that the first rule of a long con is knowing what you want, which I mean I kind of agree with in general for life, but um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't think that yeah, that's a... distinct from the rest. But like uh, that, yes. <laughs> if it's if it's drawing a parallel between a long con and a relationship, then yes, particularly because knowing what you want when you go into a relationship is really important. Otherwise, you just sort of blunder around and run into walls. And that is quite explicit that that mirroring of it in the relationships in the second story. Right. Yeah. I think for me that's the key to these these fics and where they are interesting, which was. I did not find the pairing of the second one compelling, <laughs> but that's a personal taste thing, but I could see how it would land mm -hmm. a lot better if you did. But I also wanted to talk a little bit about teams, if we can. Yeah. Because yeah. I have a corner. Go for it. Yes, you had a corner. Please tell us about your, your corner. If you want to, so, so, dear listeners, I've been taunting my, my serpents with my desire for this particular corner for a couple of days now. This is welcome, welcome to Macy's corporate bullshit corner. This is another one of those episodes which is just full of corners all so over the place. So many corners. It's for all of our thieves <laughs> to hide in. Gotta have a yes. shadow. Gotta have a blind spot in the cameras. Um. So, okay. How much do you lot know about corporate team building theory? Uh, my day job occasionally hosts corporate team building events where I watch these people playing in escape room and then i tell them how they did good and how they did bad and where they can do better ah very nice and i use and i use buzz buzzwords like synergy <laughs> i don't know <laughs> do they tip you better when you say synergy repeatedly oh i don't get tips oh so there is a theory of the phases of team formation and team uh execution that's from the 60s and it posits that there are four phases of a team and they are because we love our rhyming bullshit in corporate land forming storming norming and performing okay fuck this i have heard fuck that all of this someone has pulled that on me at a work thing before <laughs> alex has something to say about that I hate it, is what I have to say. <laughs> okay, but it's relevant. It's bad naming. It's, it's, the word, it's the word norming, isn't it? <laughs> yes. It really gets into your teeth and tastes horrible. First it was the rhyming, because whenever corporate people try... This is a rhetorical thing. We could do a whole episode about rhetoric, which is just me ranting for an hour about rhetoric. You can overuse a trick, you know? Like, you can overuse it, and... We're going to talk about why Norming. I give a shit about this. Okay. I can break the Ocean's 8 movie, for example, down into these phases. And Fascinating. I argue, Please proceed. I'm so looking forward to this. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Forming is the gathering the crew phase. Um, and Storming is overcoming their objections and figuring out how to work as a team. And that one's kind of glossed over in the film, I think. Norming is them kind of getting the heist in gear and performing is when everything comes together and it all works great particularly i feel in one shot heist media so novels and films 
a lot of the focus and tension and enjoyment is found in the team formation and the interpersonal dynamics. And for me, that was something I loved in Ocean's 8, something I loved in Six of Crows, and something I feel like... I think that uh, with Inception fanfic, it fails to compensate for the lack of that tension and drive sometimes with something else more interesting. Whereas something like Leverage or another serial heist setup knows that it won't have that to lean on, that team formation tension, and has found another plot engine. And Fick needs to do that, but doesn't always successfully manage to. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes it will substitute in like the relationship part instead. But So what if not the relationship part, then what is the plot engine that Leverage has in its later episodes? Because I would argue that it is the relationship between the characters. No, but I would argue that uh, when I'm saying relationship, I mean like romantic relationship, that Fick leans on that very strongly. I think that if you do not have the tension of new interpersonal dynamics and navigating a new thing with secrets being revealed all the time you need cast iron action plot you need a good heist you need a good trick you need a good theft and you need a problem of the week so it substitutes in the murder mystery thing for the team formation thing so i think most of the inception fic that i've read does have that element of secrets being revealed like there's always something about this is a fairly new team and they're finding out something about either their backstory or the way that they work or that and that influences relationship formation and so yes you're right in that often the plots are not quite as well thought out as leverage plots with a few exceptions but they do they do have that newness of relationship and newness of interpersonal secrets from what the ones that i've read at least i think that it's never though for me satisfyingly team as much as it is like focused on two people because that's how fic focuses okay so if you're looking for a particular type of the team feeling then yeah well that's what i'm saying with the team formation it's about the group dynamic not about individual like one-to-one interpersonal dynamics well what, what do you think alex yes you haven't said anything ages <laughs> Alex just seems so unimpressed that we're talking about Inception at all. Well, here's the thing. It's not that I'm unimpressed. It's just that when Inception came out, everyone was talking about Inception. And I decided that I wanted nothing to do with Inception. And so I resisted heartily anything to do with Inception. And (laughs) it seems like from the trailers and snippets of Inception that I have seen, it seems like there's a lot of like symbolism and shit. And there's clearly. It's clearly one of those fandoms where there's a lot of kind of tokens that everybody knows and uses and yeah. a kind of language. I, I, this Okay, so this is the first Inception I, fandom. I might not have read. suggested these fix if I had known that you had not seen Inception. Oh, I thought I mentioned that. That's okay, though. Like, usually mm. I do really well with, like, just being able to hop into a fandom and read fic, no problem. Like, whatever. I do that all the time. I think that this was a case where having several other Inception fanfics to read before I read this one would have been helpful for me to be able to parse what I was reading. You're right. I think it is a quite a symbolic piece of media. And so the fic does lean yeah. quite heavily into inference and symbolism and leaving things unsaid yeah. because the dreams in it are all about people's relationships and personalities and secrets and fears being represented concretely. Mm. And the fan fiction very much reflects that. Yeah. So like, as I was reading this, I was like, I can tell that there's something going on, but I don't speak this language yet. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's fair. It was pretty, though. Like, I, even though I didn't understand what was going on, like, I could read it and understand, like, oh, there, the, I can tell that the fic writer is doing something cool here. I just don't know, like, what it, it is. What is the shape of this thing? I find it really interesting, though, that so many of the movies and media around heists and cons have always been very modern day. Like, Inception is definitely in the here and now. Leverage is very much here and now. And a lot of the, like, thriller-style cons and heists are not genre-fic. So I'm super excited to see all of this um, Six of Crows and some other things along those lines in fantasy start tying in with actual like thieves and spies yeah. and cons and this makes me super happy but i have a question for you two okay tell us your question is the belgariad a heist sequence i don't have i read the oh you are really playing on my memory here it's been a very long time since i've read the belgariad i'm trying to remember if i've ever read the belgariad the belgariad is the, the series of books by david eddings uh Five books, the Belgariad, and that was five books for the Malorian, the, the sequel series. Yes. Honest to God, all I can remember is that there is a shiny stone, because every David Eddings series has a shiny stone that they have to acquire. Let me ask a um, more classic version of my question, then. Okay. Is The Lord of the Rings a heist sequence? I knew reverse? you were going there. I would say that's a very interesting question. Let me ponder that for a, a hot second here. <laughs> I think it, it is. Has the team it has those team dynamics. It has the forming, the norming, the storming kind yeah, of. Yeah, and the, the sort of performing. It has the hitter, it has the mastermind, it has the spy. Uh-huh. And they and they have to sneak into a place. You have to sneak they into have a to place. Sneak into a place to do a thing. Yes. So what I am arguing huh. is that a lot, huh. a lot, a lot of classic high fantasy quest sequences, the quest is a heist. Yeah. You're heisting Actually, from a yeah. dragon. But it's a heist. Yeah. Oh, the well, Hobbit The Hobbit is definitely, definitely a, heist. a heist. Yeah, yeah. The Hobbit is 100% a heist. <laughs> Alex and I both said that at exactly Alex, the same time. Did you, do you remember Silk from the Belgariad? I don't think I have read any of the Belgariad. I'm pretty sure the, the David Eddings. You said that you... I have read one David and Leigh Eddings book. And I don't, when I was like 12 years old, and I don't remember what oh, it was. Oh, was that the redemption of Althalus? Because that is a heist. One of the things that David Eddings has in his quest structure, which is kind of one of the prototypical, um, you are the boy king, you will go reclaim your throne fantasy sequences. There's always a pickpocket character as part of the quest gang. Mm -hmm. I think that's fairly typical, actually. There's always like the, the tricksy one in a high fantasy heist in a high fantasy quest team sorry mm -hmm. the rogue yes. yeah i think it is it's always a quest and so I'd, I'd i'd flip that around i would argue that a heist is a specialized form of quest where the whole point is you have to remove something because you were saying that the heist is about removal of something you're blowing my mind right now i just realized that every dnd &D game every dnd &D campaign yeah. is also a heist yeah well huh. sometimes you have to kill someone instead and i will argue that a murder True. is never a heist Yes, that's an assassination. You are taking a life. You are heisting a life. No. <laughs> no, Freya, no. Oh, come Freya, on. <laughs> Freya, if you heist my kneecaps, I'm still not your friend. <laughs> I, will not, I will not be charmed by that. Mm -hmm. No, sir. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> okay, so that was my that was my like I will blow your minds with this realization, which is that the classic fantasy quest sequence is frequently a heist. Yeah. Yep. It's open. There's a shiny rock. You got to get your hands on. Yeah, get the mugger and or dump in the volcano. And so I'm super excited to watch people actually realize this and start writing books like they realize this. Also, I really want to write my necromancer heist book sometime. Hell yeah. So yeah, we all have heists that we want to be working on. Freya, speaking yes. of speaking of heists that we want to be working on, yes. Freya, I think yeah. that you also have a corner this episode, do you not? Indeed, I do. So this Tell is us about your corner, Freya's Ravenclaw organizational corner, which is secretly, cunningly <laughs> in disguise. It is the craft corner. So it is saying, from a writing perspective, how do you go about building a heist plot? Also, for reference, from a planner's writing perspective while alex and i sit here and make vaguely burbling noises from the pantser corner about but 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 but, but, but. and like gaze adoringly at freya like you <laughs> i have had to force myself to get more on the planner side of things but i Same. am classically a pantser Same. so i am in the early stages of planning an actual heist novel which i'm not allowed to work on until i've written at least two other novels mm, but that's a mood i have actually fully planned a heist story which was a Merlin fanfic, which was about heists, which is the only thing of mine on Archive of Our Own that is unfinished. Mm. Oh, that's why but I, I planned. It. You haven't read it because it's unfinished, but I, yes. it's very old. I, I gave up on it, but I had planned the entire heist. I can tell you the outline. You can read the first chapters and I can tell you everything that happens in this heist. And the way that I did it was by using spreadsheets. Oh, God. Because that's the Ravenclaw way. How wonderful. So essentially, if you are building a high spot, you need to have a series of obstacles, and then you have to have a series of solutions to those obstacles. So you essentially make a list. And the obstacles can be as detailed as, if we need to get into this bank vault, we need to uh, get past the security guard. We need to somehow overcome the security cameras. We then need to get past this combination lock. We then need to overcome the laser grid by using Parker-type yoga. We then need to, you know, so forth and so forth. And that's for the entire heist. You have a list of obstacles. And then next to it, in the next column, you put, Macy, you have, like, disappeared Macy from died. Macy died. Macy just, just like, so died. tired by all of this planning. <laughs> I want a nap. Okay, so once you have your list of obstacles, I'm interested. the next column is <laughs> I like spreadsheets. list of solutions. And the solutions... Uh, can again be as wacky or as straightforward as you want. So what you are doing is essentially what the mastermind does. You are looking at the blueprints and the security plans and saying, how do I overcome each of these? At a certain point, you also have to mark down which of these obstacles are expected. So which of, so you have a list of expected obstacles that the mastermind knows about at the beginning, and then you have unexpected obstacles, which are things that will crop up during it that then have to be overcome and so the difference are between those, your solution those, columns are those the unknown unknowns they are the unknown unknowns and so the, the different solution columns will be ravenclaw solutions the planned solutions and the slytherin solutions which is if this thing popped up in the middle of the con how would this team deal with it and you have to know that as the writer and then you decide of all the ones that are unknown unknowns with improvised solutions or unknown unknowns that look like they're crises how much of them are actually planned for and part of the con and you have to make a decision when you are planning is this a clockwork con where every possible 
obstacle that comes up or every problem that arises is actually part of it and has been planned for and the mastermind knew all along and you're somehow going to turn it into a plus or is it something that actually comes up that was not foreseen and they have to deal with it on the spot showing Slytherin skills rather than Ravenclaw skills. So you end up with a few different columns and then once you've got that, if you're me, you turn around and look at your characters and go, right, now I have to come up with character beats. And then you come up with character beats and then you look at your two spreadsheets and you go, how can I smush these together in a satisfying <laughs> way? For example, how will cope, how can I use this character who needs to overcome this particular character point or for these two characters whose relationship needs to become closer, which of these obstacle solutions can I map that onto in an interesting way? So how is this person oh being God. in danger going to <laughs> going to make their, that person that's in love with them realize that they're in love with them? And then you just overlay your spreadsheets in your mind somehow. And then you make a scene outline and then you start writing. Ta-da! Can I, can I cancel my necromancy novel before I started? Can you cancel can it? I cancel? No, that sounds I exhausting. Have you guys seen that Tumblr post, which is how to do art? Like how to draw an owl. And first you draw two <laughs> circles. And then you draw the rest of the owl. <laughs> draw the rest of it. <laughs> Are you saying that my beautiful explanation was not going to be something that you can just turn around and duplicate immediately? It's absolutely not. And I know for a fact, because I know me, that that would kill the book. Because if I have a scene-by-scene scene outline, I cannot write even a short story. I can't do it. It kills Well, see, my scene-by-scene scene outline will be a few dot points. So this will be, this scene is where they go to the museum and set up something in the computer system. The next scene is, and then I'll have a couple of points about what happens characterized. Like, a scene outline is like a couple of sentences oh, per scene. Oh, I know. I know. And I don't know why it does it. But for me, anything more detailed than, like the main action points across the whole book is too detailed and I can't write it. Whereas for me, if I start writing without one of those outlines, I can't maintain word count. If I have a really good detailed scene by scene outline, then I can just start and then just keep throwing words at it. And then eventually I will get to the end. And occasionally you will realize that a scene needs to be removed or changed in some way, but mostly it works for me. I used to be very much on the Macy side of things where I Try, kept trying to do outlines because I thought outlines would be a helpful tool and it killed the book over and over again and then one day I sort of came up with my own very personal idiosyncratic way of doing outlines and now I'm more on the Freya side of things where if I do it this one particular weird way that works for me using this one particular style that I came up with for myself then it works and it helps and it's just like a grocery list like all I have to do I've already made all the hard decisions making decisions is a terrible thing it's the worst part it's awful and look I have nothing against pantsers I think you have to sometimes you have to pants yeah. to be creative oh, yeah. but a heist plot I would find extraordinarily difficult I to now, pants I now really want to know how Lee Bardugo did Six of Crows because it just has so many characters and so many character beats and so many moving parts that I'm fascinated. She had to there have There must be a it. spreadsheet. There must be five spreadsheets. Or she did a hella murder board afterward. Yes, murder boards. I true. It's, I'm coming at it from the point of view of someone who hates editing. Yeah, but so I would much I prefer to, put, to front load all of my effort rather than yeah. pants my way through and then turn around and go, okay, how do I then structure this? But also because yeah. you have to lay Easter eggs for 
heist. You have to lay hints early on. Like with murder mysteries, you, you have to know the pieces of the puzzle so you can lay hints of them. And I am much too impatient to go back and do that in an edit. I'd rather just have all of the pieces in my head to begin with so I know what the shape of it is so that I can just start dropping hints wherever I like. I think for me as well though it might also be a really mental block thing and what I need to do is like quietly sidle up to plotting sideways while not like meeting its eye. Yeah. At, <laughs> That's uh, what I did. That's and, what like, I did. If I write it down it's broken. If I admit that I'm doing it, it's broken. But if I'm just doing it by like, I'm just talking about my book with friends, <laughs> that doesn't count. Well, we are going to a degustation dinner with matched wines tonight. I'm pretty sure two glasses in, you and planning will be like holding hands and yes, wringing each other planning. across the table. I can make this happen. It'll Someday, be great. Someday when we are famous and fabulous, we should do a bonus episode that is just us getting tipsy and planning a novel from scratch. Oh my from like flashcard God, ideas. Yes. yes. Wouldn't that be amazing? We can like, our listeners can help us with ideas and prompts and we can pull them out of a hat and it'll be very We can do silly. Mad Libs novel building. Yes. We'll do some kind of workshop on Patreon or something. But we can't do um, like self-insert heists because we are all mastermind grifters and that heist would fall apart so fast. Yeah, it would. Yeah, it would. Yeah, we, someone would come up to us and we'd like, who's going to punch them for us? And we'd all just stand there uselessly not punching Nobody, them. no, oh no, you don't have to punch if you can seduce. <laughs> joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. Honestly, I love heists. And cons! What a great plot structure, right? What fantastical setting couldn't be livened up with a good heist AU? And even Pratchett loved a con. It seems like everywhere I turn there's another example. I shouldn't get too enthusiastic, though or Alex might actually take steps to form that heist crew they've been talking about. And Roland's three doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? Anyway, we have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes. On the next episode, two weeks hence on October 10th, we'll be discussing OT3s. You know, the best possible ending for any and all love triangle. If you want to prepare in advance, one of the tentpoles for that episode is the white collar fic Always Starts the Same with a Boy and a Girl by Light Gets In. So, if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Remember that we're actually about to record our next extravaganza, so do feel free to send us questions for that at theserpentcast at gmail.com email address. Otherwise, if you've got any other breathless adulations, feel free to reach out over Twitter on at SerpentCast or on Tumblr. Or you can join in the conversation in our fan Discord chat linked on about the show page of our website. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to review us on iTunes. And by the way, I'd never try to con you. You're far too smart for that.